Well, good morning. As Johnny said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Blair Burns, and I go to church here with my family. My son, Eli, is the kid who got locked in a locker a few months ago. (laughs) My favorite part of that story is that Johnny apologized to me for it. Since my misbehaving children necessitated a call to the fire department and the destruction of Fairfax County property, I thought it was pretty funny that Johnny felt he had the need, he had the need to apologize. The only other thing I will say about that is that, is that Eli had co-conspirators. <laughs> and also, as Johnny said, I lead global operations for an organization called International Justice Mission, where I have worked for the past 13 years. And today is Freedom Sunday. Today, in more than 400 churches throughout the United States, we are invited to consider the role of God's people in ending slavery forever. If you are new to the topic, you may be surprised to learn that slavery not only exists in the 21st century, it flourishes. The most credible estimates out there indicate that upwards of 30 million people are enslaved in our world today. When I first joined IJM and was preparing to move my family to India, I ran into a missionary who asked me what my verse was. Now, questions like this one always stress me out. I never, ever get the right answer to the evangelical Christian culture questions, causing no small amount of eye-rolling from my wife, Christina. So, not wanting to be seen as a pagan, I put on my very best prayerful, thoughtful, serious face and rapidly brainstormed any verses I might be able to come up with. To my utter astonishment, because this never happens to me in such moments, I came up with one. And somewhat smugly, I said, well, my fellow mission field worker in God's kingdom, it is Ecclesiastes 4, 1. Then I looked, and I saw the tears of the oppressed. Their oppressors had power, and there was no one to comfort them. With my small victory over the evangelical Christian culture firmly logged, I then relaxed and spoke a little more reflectively than I am normally able to do in such conversations. I said, You know, I think I'm going to India because I have seen some of the reality that Solomon speaks of. And what I want to do is to help bring some power onto the side of those that are crushed because they do not have it. My friends, modern slavery takes many forms, but this is all slavery really is. It is people who are weak becoming tools of profit for those who are stronger. It's the bully on the playground, commercialized. And just like with the bully on the playground, all that takes to stop it is for those of goodwill with power to intend that it not exist anymore. But it isn't stopping. And so as we sit in our fantastic little church in Vienna, Virginia this morning, Millions of men, women, and children live lives given over to the profit and pleasure of other people. When I consider this most ancient of tragedies, everything in me cries out, it shouldn't be like this. Why can't the world rise to stop it? Maybe we just need some hope. The story I would like us to look to this morning begins with a girl named Mian. In the early 2000s, Mian was a young girl living with her family in a village called Svepak, just outside of Cambodia's storied capital of Phnom Penh. 
The tiny village had become noteworthy back then as a center of burgeoning industry. It is somewhat of an irony that a desperately poor minority village in one of the poorest countries in Asia would become internationally renowned for its commercial success. But it did. Svepak's red-hot economy depended entirely on the selling of a commodity to a high-end international market. Its industry leaders commanded a nearly limitless supply of the commodity, and the market was enormous. The commodity was young girls. The market was every pedophile in the world with the means to get there. Pimps and brothel owners operating in Svepak worked diligently to maintain the flow of their supply. Through loan sharking and coercion, they were able to exploit the desperate needs of poor families and convince them to give over their daughters. On one occasion, our staff interviewed a pimp operating in the village who regularly purchased children away from their families. They asked, how is it that you get parents to sell you their children? It's not that hard, she explained in a haunting matter-of-fact tone. Families in Svepak designate one daughter that they raise for sale, much as one would a sheep or a cow. And then they, raise the, then they keep the rest of the children for themselves. When I go to buy a child, they already know which one they are going to give me. Mien's story is then just terribly typical. Her father was an abusive alcoholic. Her mother struggled to put food on the table. At times, she had to borrow money to do it, and one day it all caught up to her. She needed a solution, and so she sold Mian to pay her debts. It is the nature of the business that a young girl is a diminishing resource. Her highest point of value is her first time. The world's pedophiles would pay upwards of $5,000 to rape a virgin. Young virgin girls like Mian were used to cater to the upper end of the market, and these deals took weeks to advertise and negotiate. And so upon arriving at her brothel just down the street from her home, Mian was forced into a sickly pink room with other young girls. The brothel managers called this room the virgin room. It was there that Mian sat, day after day, awaiting the inevitable. Eventually, the, pimp, the pimps inked the deal, and Mian was brought to a wealthy man from a far-off place. He took his prize, and he raped her. When he was through, her pimps sent her home. They required her to report back on a moment's notice whenever a customer wanted a young girl. Her body had become a commodity, part of the endless flow of supply, worth less and less every day to her owners because she was no longer new. She was raped an average of three times per day, bringing in less and less as time went by. Now at that time, IJM's investigators deployed in northern Thailand had begun to hear whisperings of a village called Svepak, where, where, where young girls as young as five were sold to foreign pedophiles by the thousands. We sent a team in, they called back and said, matters are worse. Not only were children being sold in large numbers, the police and government officials all knew it was happening and were quite content to let it continue. We took on the case from our office here in Washington, eventually mobilizing Dateline NBC to cover the case in order to compel the interest of the United States ambassador and to pressure the intransigent Cambodian government to intervene. In 2003, as hoped, the case culminated in a raid on Mian's brothel. It was our biggest operation to date. 37 girls, nine of them under the age of 10, were rescued that day, and several pimps and brothel managers were arrested. It was a remarkable, game-changing victory in a place of deep sorrows. And Mian watched it all happen 
as she walked down the street toward her brothel that day, where the police had entered with great fanfare. Mian had been delayed. When rescue had come, she was simply not there. Taught by her overseers to fear the police, she instinctively melted out of sight and hid in terror. And then they were gone. And with them, Mian's hope for freedom. Shortly thereafter, she would return to work in Svepak's brothels. Eventually, she would be sold outright to pimps operating in the northern city of Siem Reap, where sex tourists could play a round of golf and see the Angkor Wat temples in addition to raping young girls. I wanted to talk to you about Mian today because she is one of the many who got away. Mian is the unspeakable truth behind every story of rescue. You see, at IJM, we tell these stories all the time, harrowing stories of rescue and restoration, beautiful stories of redemption. But in all of these stories, there are some who, because of of things like time and circumstance and logistics, were just not there when they needed to be. Some for whom rescue never came. In that, Mian haunts us. And then beyond Mian, we are haunted by the fact that the weak like Mian need to be rescued at all. It shouldn't be like this. We long for a world where the vulnerable never would fall victim to violence in the first place. In short, we long for the transformation of our world. We long for the kingdom of God, for we know that is what was promised. So we look for it. We pray for it. Many are confident of it. But for some of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we're, not, we're just not sure. I have a favorite passage of Scripture. It's a bit odd. It's not one of the cool passages of Scripture to use as your favorite passage of Scripture. Another of my Christian culture fails. So it's not the Great Commission or the Greatest Commandment, though I do like that one, or John 3.16. It is just this peculiar interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist, one that I suspect that most people skim right over as they read through Matthew's Gospel. We read it this morning. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? I will never forget reading this for the first time. I am 18, I am in college, an attractive young lady had given me a student Bible, and I was reading Matthew mainly to impress her, and also because that's what it said to do on the back cover. By the time I had gotten to this passage, I had already read some of Jesus' interactions with people who did not think he was the Messiah. And I had found Jesus to be, well, not just a little bit prickly. So I braced for his response. But this was different. The voice asking this question is the voice of the one calling in the desert the one prophesied in Isaiah to make Jesus' path straight, to herald the coming of the kingdom of God. The voice asking this question is Elizabeth and Zechariah's son, Jesus' cousin, 
who leapt in the womb when the pregnant virgin simply walked into Elizabeth's presence. The voice asking this question is the one who begged not to baptize Jesus because he was so unworthy of God's son and who in that divine moment heard the audible instruction of the father. The voice asking this question is the one person in all the world whom Jesus could reasonably expect to have his back. But rather than having his back, John asks, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? After a lifetime of preaching of God's kingdom, John is not so sure. It's quite amazing to us now. John blessed with more understanding and wisdom than any of us who knew more about the real nature of God's kingdom and his gospel than everyone else. John, who saw the same events we read about. John, the greatest of all the prophets, in that critical hour, was failing to see what was actually happening all around him. And of course, what was actually happening right then was the greatest thing the world had ever seen. The kingdom of God had come. God the Son had become God the man. So as we look back at this, we marvel, how in the world could he, have, could he have missed it? We kind of want to call him an idiot, but we hesitate because here we know we are dealing with no fool. How could he have missed it? It's easier than one might think. To understand this, we need to look at John in better times. You see, John was a fiery man. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? How's that for a greeting? And then he goes on, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This was John at the height of his ministry, fiery and confident. But in our story, he is at the end of his life. He is in prison. His ministry is over. Soon a young girl will perform a dance and ask for John's head as her reward. And so as he looks across his world, his grand vision does not appear a bit closer to being realized. The brood of vipers still rule over God's people. The coming wrath never came. No one is being baptized with fire. The Holy Spirit has not come upon the redeemed. There are no redeemed. And the wheat remains hopelessly mixed in with the chaff on the threshing floor. As he looks out, All he has is his enigmatic cousin going around telling vague stories. John is undone. It shouldn't be like this. Things have not worked out as they were supposed to. They rarely do. As we began work in Cambodia in 2003 in preparation for launching a field office, our director of investigations met a young man named Sek Sarun at a bar called Martini's in Phnom Penh. Sarun was working there as a DJ 
as the bar's owners arranged the sale of children to their patrons. Sarun was born in 1975 as the Khmer Rouge was storming to victory, seizing power, and evacuating all of the residents of the capital to lay the groundwork for the agrarian utopia they were determined to create. During the first four years of Sarun's life, the Khmer Rouge consumed Cambodia, perpetrating the worst genocide the world had ever seen. By the end of it, one out of every four people would be dead. The Khmer Rouge specifically targeted professionals as well as their own officers who showed any sign of impurity of thought, leaving all of Cambodia's professional ranks completely decimated by 1979. Sarun grew up during the Vietnamese occupation, which while having ended the genocide, was not designed to rebuild the devastated nation. As a child, Sarun was playing in a field and found an unspent hand grenade, not an uncommon occurrence in Cambodia. It blew up, taking a large portion of his right hand with it, in a culture that does not look kindly upon physical disability. Possessing great acumen, when Sarun entered adulthood, he found that his country had few opportunities for professional training or professional jobs. He tried to become a teacher, but the opportunities were just not there. So he studied English and took the best job he could find in Phnom Penh. He peddled drinks and then songs to wealthy tourists as they purchased children for rape. Such was the story of Cambodia by 2003. It was a broken country. After the Vietnamese left, the United Nations launched its most ambitious mission ever to rebuild a nation. But billions of dollars later, the UN ended its efforts in the mid-1990s. As the last UN officials were leaving, their cleverly designed government fell apart. One of the two co-prime ministers deposed the other behind the force of his personal Praetorian Guard. Hun Sin, a former Khmer Rouge lieutenant and then Vietnamese puppet, consolidated his hold on power by naming himself prime minister and installing his cronies throughout the highest levels of his government. To maintain their loyalty, he bought them off by giving them large tracts of land seized under government auspices from poor farmers that populate most of the country. These men all became millionaires while their country sank ever deeper into poverty. Hun Sen's police force, the Cambodia National Police, knew all about the thousands of young children like Mien who were forced into an industry of rape for profit. And they were entirely unconcerned about it. For the poor of Cambodia, that is, for just about everyone in Cambodia, suffering, violence, and death were the rule of the day. A dictator held power. The world had tried to help, but had failed and given up. It was a country without hope. What it needed was John the Baptist. What it needed was the kingdom of God. And so like John of old, we set out 13 years ago as God's people to protect the children of Cambodia from the men and women of violence who ran its enormous sex industry. We waded into this broken and destitute land, praying for rescue, praying for restoration, praying for accountability, and praying for transformation. And we had the audacity to believe it would happen, that one day the justice system would work, that police in Cambodia would protect children from violence, that sex traffickers and pimps would go to jail for their crimes, that the crime would stop. And so with all the idealism and faith of John, we did this work, 
We prayed these prayers day after day, year after year, violent story after violent story. In fact, this is what we work for and pray for in all the places where we fight modern slavery today. In India, where millions toil in brick kilns, plantations, rice mills, and in the commercial sex industry. In Ghana, where young boys have their childhood ripped from them so that they can spend 14 hours a day on small fishing boats under the lash of evil men. On the Gulf of Thailand, where young men from across Southeast Asia are forced onto boats and murdered on a regular basis to keep them in check. In the Philippines, where boys and girls aged 2 to 17 are pulled off the street and forced to perform sex acts, videoed and sent live over the internet to anyone in the world who can wire a $50 payment. And in the Dominican Republic, where a key portion of the tourist economy is built on the backs of the children sold into its enormous sex industry. We fight these fights, and we're haunted by all the means that we missed. And we're haunted by all those we did rescue, because as time goes on, we yearn almost desperately to get to that point where people never become victims at all. And so maybe like John, as we lift our eyes to the evils perpetrated across our world, we're tired. Maybe like John, we are no longer satisfied with promises of hope. Maybe like John, we are undone. Maybe like John, we wonder, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? But hopefully, if we are like John, we will do what John did. We will bring our question to Jesus himself. The reason this is my favorite passage of Scripture is because of Jesus' response to the one who should have had his back. Rather than respond in anger, rather than issuing a witty rebuke, Jesus gently says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. When I was 18, reading my Bible to impress a girl, Jesus had me right here. He is doing three things. The first two are pretty obvious. The third is amazing. Knowing that John is having trouble seeing what is really happening, Jesus first points us to what is real. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. And there is this sort of between-the-line statement that goes something like, and so are these things not true? And then he goes on to list out the things that he knows that John's disciples know are true. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The second thing he is doing is he is citing to what was promised. Jesus' litany of things that are real was not chosen lightly. What he is doing here is paraphrasing a few passages from the prophet Isaiah foretelling what would happen when the Messiah came. For you logicians out there, it's like this. The prophet said you would know the Messiah because he would be doing 
these things. I am doing these things. Therefore, I am the Messiah. But for you non-logicians, and, and by that I mean those of you with a heart, you need the third thing that Jesus is doing. When Jesus says the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, he is not just saying that these things are real and that they were the things that were promised, and so you should believe in me. There are prophecies about the coming of the Christ throughout the Old Testament. Proof texts abound. But here, Jesus goes specifically and exclusively to Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah does not just prophesy about Jesus. He also tells the story of the voice of the one calling in the desert. Isaiah tells the story of John. What Jesus is doing is going to John's own story. He is going to that part of the scripture that John knows more than anything else. It is an intensely personal conversation. And he is saying, John, look closely at what is happening. Ignore the distraction and the noise and all your add-ons of what my kingdom should look like and when. What is happening is exactly how you knew it would be. I am the Christ. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And then I like to think that John, upon hearing this in his jail cell as he was preparing to die, also heard Jesus saying, You made ready my way. You made straight my paths. You have discharged the duties of your ministry. Your work here is finished, my brother. Go in peace to my Father. I am right behind you. The blind receive sight. When our director of investigations met that young man named Sex Sarun in Martinis, he befriended him. He first developed Sarun as an informant. Sarun became invaluable in gathering actionable information about the trade of children in Phnom Penh. One day he gave Sarun his Bible and asked him to read it. And then, drawing ever closer to our team, Sarun met Jesus. As he proved ever more capable, we brought him on as a member of our staff. He went to law school. It is important to note here that in 2003, we surveyed all of the lawyers in Cambodia and found that in a country of 14 million people, there were only 500 lawyers, roughly equivalent to the number of lawyers in this church. <laughs> of those 500, just six were Christians. None of those six were particularly interested in working for us. But in 2010, Sarun became a licensed member of the Cambodia Bar. For the first time in the history of our operations in Cambodia, we no longer had to retain outside counsel to do our legal work. Sarun got right to it. In his first year as a lawyer, he ensured the conviction of 37 traffickers. His conviction rate is over 95%. He is one of the finest lawyers in his country. The dead are raised. When Mian was sold to brothels and seam reap, she was as good as gone. Already a needle in a haystack, she was now far removed from our operations. Svepak was challenging enough, deploying our very limited resources across Cambodia's tenuous infrastructure as far as seam reap was an uphill climb back then. But a few years later, 
We are working in partnership with police and Siem Reap to get a handle on the rampant trafficking of children in the tourist city. One of our staff met Mian for the first time on a routine investigation. She described her as destitute and sad, for by this point, Mian had endured years of trauma. We identified her for rescue and determined not to let her go. Months later, the Siem Reap police were ready. They entered Mian's brothel in force and brought her out, arresting her owners. We brought her to the Agape Restoration Center in Phnom Penh, where Mian met a staff of professionals committed to her healing. Initially hostile and distrusting, Mian resisted her, their help. But she bravely enrolled in a new recovery program at Agape that imp implemented trauma-focused counseling, which helped her to restore her mind and her emotions after years of abuse. She attended daily devotionals and was touched by the love of Jesus, whom she now says is the one who rescued me. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So what of Cambodia? What of this nation that has borne the curse for so long? What about all the Mians we didn't happen to find? A Google search might tell you that little has changed there. Hun Sen remains in power. There has been no effective effort to bring accountability, reconciliation, and restoration from the Khmer Rouge genocide. The press remains beholden to the government. The poor still have their land taken by those in power. High-end corruption is endemic, and the nation has not shaken off its reputation as a hotbed for the rampant sexual exploitation of children. John's point exactly. But as Jesus might say, look closer. In 2003, the police looked the other way, allowing thousands of young children to be ravaged by foreign pedophiles. Today, a well-trained and effective anti-trafficking police force extends to every corner of the land, actively pursuing those who would abuse children. Many of those pedophiles are in jail, and others are afraid to go to Cambodia. In 2003, the police treated children in brothels like perpetrators. Today, they employ victim-sensitive procedures and put together princess puzzles alongside those they are charged with protecting. I don't know what would cause you to put together a princess puzzle. In 2003, no one went to jail for trafficking or, uh, or abusing children. But today, hundreds of convicted pimps and sex traffickers are in prison serving sentences imposed by Cambodia's courts. Many of them were put there by a young lawyer named Sex Saroon. Many others were put there by Cambodian prosecutors who take their duties quite seriously. In 2003, we almost decided not to do this fade pot case at all due to a dearth of aftercare services available in Cambodia. Can you imagine? We almost did not go. Today, a great majority of our clients are restored through their own bravery and an effective aftercare system. In 2003, we could find no government officials to move forward a single case, which is why we had to bring pressure through Dateline NBC and the United States Ambassador. Today, we work with a cadre of professional and dedicated career civil servants in all relevant ministries across Cambodia's justice system. These men and women care about their country and are determined to make it a safe place for children. But let's be real. All that really matters is whether it is a safe place for children. In 2003, Credible estimates indicated that in Cambodia's enormous sex industry, 
between 15 and 30% of all sex workers were children. Indeed, we saw thousands of them with our own eyes. Last year, as we wrapped up our program, we conducted a final prevalence study to see where things now stand. We found that today, approximately 2% of sex workers are minors under the age of 18. We also found that the prevalence of sex workers aged 15 and under, that is, those below the age of majority in Cambodia, is now less than one-tenth of 1%. In fact, we only found two such children, and the police took those cases for rescue. Does Cambodia still have challenges? Of course it does. Like Judea of John's time, there is much that is wrong. But as Jesus pointed out, everything has already changed. Eventually, Sexeroon would become the director of our legal team and our primary liaison to the royal government of Cambodia, once a DJ in a very bad place, now an unlikely hero to his people. It was he who identified and inspired many of those civil servants that now seek to protect the poor from violence in Cambodia. Mien would become a tailor and own her own successful business, a life dream of hers. When our partner organization started programs to bring, the development, to bring development and renewal to Svepak, Mien was right there. She joined the mammoth effort to help her village move past the horrors that were once committed there. Can slavery end in the 21st century? Can slavery end on our watch? Can long-broken nations rise up to protect their people from this most ancient of human tragedies? Can power be brought to the side of those who are oppressed in our world? This is what we sought in Cambodia, in the most hopeless of nations. And as Sarun can attest, as Mien can attest, as the thousands of children who are no longer abused can attest, as the tens of thousands of children who will never be raped could attest if they only knew. Cambodia is a transformed nation, one that lights our way forward. Thank you.